Father, we want to bow our heads and our hearts before your word. For you, O Lord, have the authority to declare. You, O Lord, have the, have the power and the knowledge and the wisdom to, to know what you have decreed. O Lord, we pray that as we hear your word, that we would hear well. Open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts. In the name of Christ we pray, for his glory and honor. Amen. This passage, Revelation 14, includes a number of images that go in all kinds of directions. I'm not sure if you picked on that reality, that there's a cluster of images, and at first, when you read this passage, you, may, you, you wonder what is going on, why are these pictures put together, and how do we make sense of them? There is, however, a, a logic in this chapter, and the logic is that these images that seem opposite are actually creating a contrast between two categories of people and their destinies. On one side, we see the people of God described through this symbolic image or symbolic uh, reference of the 144,000. On the other side, uh, we see the people of the earth who continue to worship the beast. And what both categories have in common is that both are described as worshipers. Both are described as worshipers. Uh, besides this one common thing between them, everything about them is very different. So this passage presents a contrast between two kinds of worshipers. Actually, there's only two kinds of worshipers. The difference in the world is not between those who uh, worship, uh, those who are religious or those who are worshipers and those who are not. The biggest difference is between those who are worshipers of God as he revealed himself to us and those who worship something else or everything else. In the last part of the chapter, we also see not only the contrast of worshipers, we also see a contrast of harvests. We get to look at the details of this passage. When we see the details, we realize that the two harvests refer not to the harvest of crops, but to the harvest of people. And when we put these images together, we realize that the two kinds of worshipers will turn out into two opposite kinds of harvests. We can think of, of many ways to divide up the people of the earth. The people of the world can be divided based on nationality, uh, we can divide one another based on age, based on gender. We can divide one another based on race or income or interests or careers, jobs. But the Bible reveals one fundamental division. And that division is between those who worship God and those who worship the beast. But that's the only category that we see here in the book of Revelation. And why is God giving this message, chapter 14, at this point in the book of Revelation? Because in the previous two chapters, um, the focus was on the work of the unholy trinity. The, the work of the dragon, 
assisted by the two beasts who carry out the work and the agenda of the dragon to deceive the dwellers of the earth not to worship the God who created the heavens and the earth, but to worship something else. And chapter 13 closed with a picture of how the unholy trinity is able to make the dwellers of the earth worship the beast and makes them to be identified with the, with the beast and, and the unholy trinity. The unholy trinity uses manifestations of power to deceive people. It uses a threat of death and it uses the lure of material benefits to get the people of the earth to follow the beast and to turn away from the worship of God. Well, the two beasts um, work. And some of you have asked, well, who are the two beasts? Well, the two beasts uh, are these images in the book of Revelation that assist the dragon that work through the political, the religious, and the economic systems of the world in order to pressure the followers of Jesus to compromising their faith in order to obtain a more secure place in this earth. Uh, we know that five of the seven churches in the book of Revelation have experienced various levels of compromise. They are already infiltrated by false teaching. They were infiltrated by the worship of idolatry. They were infiltrated by being deceived by wealth and thinking they have it off. They have enough and they have all they need. So the warning against deception and the compromise that the unholy trinity is bringing upon the earth is not only for the people out there in the world, it's also for the people in the church. The text, this passage in particular, calls Christians to persevere against the deception and the compromise that the beasts and the dragon, the unholy trinity, um, put against the earth and against all the people of the earth, including uh, the people of God. This text gives Christians the incentives. Why remain faithful? It gives us the incentives to remain faithful and persevere in a life of obedience to God. Part of those incentives is to offer a big contrast between the people of God and the people of the beast. The people of God will be redeemed, while the people of the beast will be eternally tormented. No matter how much the, the beast would try to threaten us, or try to make us look like we are on the losing side of, of, the, of life here on earth, this passage shows that the people of God will be redeemed, and the people of the beast will be eternally, eternally tormented. For those who are not Christians and are listening to this, past, to this message, this text calls the people of the earth, all of them, calls you this morning to turn away from a path of ignoring God and calls instead to turn to God and worship Him and become a worshiper of the true and living God. And, and this passage will show us why. If we were to divide up this passage, we, we can divide it, even though in our, in our, most in our Bibles, you can see that it's divided in three passages. You see that, how verses 1 through, four, through 5, and 6 to 12, and through 13, and then 14 through 20. Even though our editors chose to divide this passage in three segments, um, a, a way to look at this passage is to look at two major points. There's a contrast. 
a contrast between the people of God and the people of the beast on one side, and then the contrast of their destiny. So we want to look at these two big ideas that this passage shows, a contrast of worshipers uh, between the people of God and the people of the beast. The first 13 verses create this context in a very real, very, very visceral way. The people of God uh, are presented at the beginning in verses 1 through 5, and we're going to see them again in verses 12 to 13. And in between, sandwiched in between, is the people of the earth who are considering the worship of the beast. Um, the first five verses present the people of God as they will be, or as we will be, in the new creation. It's important to realize that the people of God here in this passage are presented in two time frames, the future and the present. The first five verses present the people of God as we will be in the new creation. That's verses 1 through 5. And as we are in the present in verses 12 and 13. And then in contrast with the people of God is going to be the people of the beast. Let's look at, at these pictures. In verses 1 through 5, uh, how do we know that the people of God are presented in their glorified state or in, their, in the new creation? Well, because John sees a vision of Mount Zion, and on Mount Zion, the Lamb is standing on Mount Zion and is followed by his people. It also speaks of the people of God singing a new song before the throne of God. In this text, the vision of, the, of Mount Zion, or the holy mountain, uh, refers not, to, not simply to a, a physical um, geographical point, but it is referring, and it's standing in contrast with the image of, the ba- of Babylon, which is presented in this passage as fallen. So you have a city, Babylon, which represents a city of the world, in contrast with, with a holy mountain, the mountain of the Lord. And on the holy mountain is a lamb with his people. And Babylon is fallen in this passage. The picture of the people of God standing on God's, God's mountain is a picture that first was introduced in the book of Exodus. The story of Exodus when the Israelites finished crossing the Red Sea, Moses sang a song of praise. It's a song of praise that our brother Mason read earlier in the service for us in Exodus 15. It's a song of praise that exalts God for freeing his people from the clutches of Pharaoh, from the tyranny of Pharaoh. And Moses finished that song of praise with a picture of God's people that God will bring his people to his holy mountain. Exodus 15, 17, you will bring them, says Moses, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Here John sees a vision in Revelation 14 of the people of God finally dwelling on God's holy mountain. The hope that Moses sang about in Exodus is finally fulfilled in the book of Revelation. And that holy mountain refers to the new creation that God will bring and God will dwell with his people as into a sanctuary. 
what this vision tells us is that God's people will make it through. God will not let his people down. This journey that they started, that we started, it may be filled with difficulties. It may feel like a journey through the wilderness. It may feel like a journey through many needs, through unmet needs, through tests and trials. But the message that this image gives us is God's people will get to God's holy mountain. The lamb is standing on his mountain with his followers around him. The first five verses focus on describing how God's people look like when finally they will arrive at God's holy mountain. These five verses describe the people of God in that future state and give six descriptions how God's people will be like in that future state. Uh, if you like taking notes, this, by the way, this first major point, the contrast between the people of God and the people of the beast will be the longest uh, point in the sermon. And, uh, but we're going to see this contrast because this is the heart of what's going on in this passage. Six descriptions about God's people as we will be on that holy mountain. The first one is in verse 1. They have the sign of ownership to God. They have the sign of ownership to God. In verse 1, they have the name of the Lamb and the name of His Father written on their foreheads. Now, if you were with us last two Sundays, particularly last Sunday, you have seen how the idea of having the name of God written on the forehead is is not a new thing. Uh, We actually see how the beast has put a mark with his name on those who follow and worship the beast. So here is a contrast between the people of God and the people of the beast. Now, it's not that God reacts to the people of the beast on the beast, and God says, wait, the beast is putting his name on his people. Let me put mine on my my people. Oh, no, it's, it's the other way around. In the book of Revelation, God is the first one who marked his people with a name in Revelation chapter 7. And it is in in reaction to what God does that the beast is trying to mimic and compete with God. Here we see again the contrast between those who belong to the beast, to the the worship of, of anything but God, and those who actually worship God. They have the sign, and this sign is a sign of ownership. Friends, becoming a Christian means, among other things, a change of ownership of our lives, from ourselves, from, from thinking that we own ourselves, we realize that God owns us. God, the God who made us, he owns us. We not only represent him, but we belong to him. We are his people, and one day we will dwell with him forever and ever. The first characteristic of the people of God is that they have the sign of ownership to God. The second is that they sing a new song. And only the redeemed can sing this new song. It's a, they sing a new song that only the redeemed can sing. In verse 2, John hears a new song being sung in heaven. A song that is both very loud, like thunder, roam of many waters. But it's also very harmonious. A voice like harpists playing their harps. It's not a scary sound. It's a loud sound, but not a scary sound. 
And they're singing a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and before the elders. And we are told that no one, think about this one, no one, not, not even the seraphim, not even the four elders, no one could learn that song except the 144 because they have been redeemed. This is a song of redemption. This is a, this is a song that, that God's people, whom God redeems, can sing before the throne of God and only they can sing it because only they have experienced God's redemption. It's a song about their redemption. They have experienced the benefits of the death of the Lamb and they can sing about it. I wonder, friend, if, if you too could sing that song of the redeemed. Have you experienced God's redemption in a way that you can sing about it? It's only, it's only, the only, it's one thing to sing songs in church that you might see on a screen and you go along, you sort of go with the flow because that's what we do. But it's something else to be able to sing that song in heaven. You know, here on earth in a church service, even non-Christians can sing the songs that we sing together. But the song that is being sung in heaven, only the redeemed can learn how to sing it. In order to sing that new song, you must first experience God's redemption. It's not enough to know about God's redemption, dear friends. It's not enough to know about God's redemption. You must experience his redemption. And that's, that happens when the benefits of Christ's death and the resurrection are applied to our hearts. In verse 4, God's people are described as pure and undefiled. It says... Verse 4 says, It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Now let me clarify some possible misunderstanding from this. This picture does not mean that married people are defiled. Uh, the notion of men being defiled with women appeared in Leviticus 18.20, which warns men against committing adultery with another man's wife. Leviticus 18.20 says that committing adultery with another man's wife makes that man to become defiled with that woman. And this picture of, of being defiled with women is speaking about adultery. Picture of a one, uh, 144,000 who have not defiled themselves with women is a way of speaking about the people of God as the people who have not committed adultery. Now, this does not mean, and the application of this picture is not merely or limited only to physical adultery. In the Old Testament in particular, the image of adultery and sexual immorality was often used by the prophets to describe unfaithfulness to God. When the people of God would, would stop following the Lord, would act against his commands, or would begin following other idols. The prophets used, in order to bring the seriousness of what that meant, the prophets used the imagery of adultery, of a spiritual adultery. In the book of Revelation, Babylon is a city representing the kingdom of the world, and Babylon is described as a harlot. So when God's people are described here as not being defiled or not defiling themselves with women, this should not be taken as putting down marriage or simply showing them abstaining 
um, from, from physical adultery, although that's certainly included, it actually means a lot more than just physical adultery. It means spiritual adultery. It's a way of saying the people of God are absta- abstaining from spiritually unfaithfulness to God. They are also described as virgins. In the Greek of the New Testament, this word for virgin is only used for women. It's a, it's a female word. So on first appearance, it's odd that what looks like a, a group of men are described with a, a term that is actually reserved only for women. And what's the point here? In the book of Revelation, the people of God who belong to Christ are getting ready and awaiting for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And they are getting ready to be presented as the bride of Christ, both men and women. So to describe the 144,000 as virgins is a way of speaking about their absolute purity and devotion as the people of God who are waiting for the marriage supper of the Lamb. They're waiting to be betrothed. They're waiting in purity. They are described as followers. Uh, They are described as people who are absolutely pure and devoted to the Lord. But they're also described in a fourth way. They're described as followers of Christ. Verse 4, it is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Friends, being a Christian is not a static experience. It's not just a status. It's not just a name. Being a Christian means following Jesus. Following Jesus. Going on His path. Following His lead. Going wherever He leads or wherever He goes. Some Christians, sometimes we think that we can negotiate with God or with Jesus where we go, where He calls us to go, how far we want to go. Have you ever found yourself trying to negotiate with God's ways? Lord, I'm willing to go, but only this far? Or Lord, I'm willing to go, but only here, not there? Here the people of of the Lord are described as, as those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. John 12, 26, Jesus says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. This picture shows that those who belong to God are followers of Christ. Friend, if you call yourself a Christian, are you someone who actually follows Jesus? Or you just like to call yourself a Christian because it's, it's a good thing in your eyes? Are there any paths that God is calling you to take? Even now, and you perhaps are unwilling to take and have a hard time to take. The fourth description of the people of God is that they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. The fifth description is they are described as first fruits for God. They're described as first fruits for God. Look again at verse 4. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. Now, the verb to be redeemed can also be translated in other translations. My use of the language uh, of being purchased. And it really is. The, la- the verb for being redeemed is a word for purchase. They, in other words, they have been purchased from mankind as the firstfruits. Now, here's something interesting about the contrast between chapter 14 and chapter 13. 
We've seen how, how this picture is a picture of contrast with a, with a beast and his people. Remember how the beast, no one could buy or sell anything on the earth without the mark of the beast? Here is God telling us that he purchased his people against the will of the beast. God's ability to purchase people is not limited by the threat that the beast has that no one can purchase or sell anything without the mark of the beast. Here God purchases his people from the earth, from the realm of the beast. He purchases them. He redeems that part of the redemption, the idea of redemption is that our redemption happens with a price. The only way God could redeem his people is if he paid the price for our rebellion. But when, we have when he has purchased us, notice what he purchased us as. He purchased us as first fruits. These have been purchased from mankind as first fruits for God. So John sees a relationship between being redeemed or being purchased and being first fruits. Now, we, we are not very familiar with the concept of first fruits. But the people in the first century, particularly the, the believers, especially those who have been steeped in the Old Testament, especially the Jewish people, knew very well what this notion of first fruits meant. When a field of crops began to ripe, the first fruits that, that got ripe would be called the first fruits. It, it's not that the whole harvest is fully ripe, but the very first fruits. And God said in the Old Testament that the first fruits belonged to God. The people of Israel, and I can imagine, I had, I just, I had this experience recently this summer for the first time in, in our lives. Uh, we ate from our own peach tree. We have planted a peach tree in the back of, our, of our, our yard. And for years, we could not have a peach tree that would actually, we could actually eat. And this year was the first year. And I remember seeing the, the peaches actually making it through and becoming ripe, and the, the squirrels didn't get to them. Uh, and I was able to pick out the first peach and eat of that tree. It was the first fruit of that tree. Now, if I was a Jew living in Old Testament times, that first peach that I took, I was not allowed to eat. I was supposed to bring it to the temple. It was the first fruits. And God said that the first fruits belong to God. They're his. Only the priests could eat the first fruits in the temple alone. They belong to God. Now imagine that image of first fruits. And now God says that he purchased his people as first fruits. As the offering of first fruits. Friends, in the Old Testament, people brought grains or their produce as first fruit offerings. But now in the book of Revelation, it is God who purchases his people. And people are no longer merely bringing their first fruits of their labor to God, but they become the first fruits. Friends, what this means for us is that, you know, sometimes people think we, we want to bring we want to bring our first fruit to the Lord of what he gives us, of, of our money, of, what, of the income he gives us. We want to bring a portion of that to the Lord. 
But this, is, this passage makes it very clear. Giving money to God does not cause us to belong to God. We don't purchase our belonging to God through what we give to Him. In order to become the first fruits of God, God must do the purchase. God must pay the price. He makes us His first fruits. And He has done it through the blood of Jesus. So that anyone who turns away from their rebellion, from their ignorance of God, and trusts in Christ and in His death and in His resurrection as a means of salvation, becomes a child of God. And when that happens, when we embrace by faith God's redemption, God's purchase of us through Jesus, when we embrace that by faith, God makes us to be His first fruits. Friends, if you've never experienced God's salvation, if you've never experienced God's salvation, I want to encourage you today. Call to God. Ask God to save you. Tell God that you confess to God that you are a sinner and tell God to, to apply the blood of Christ, which you believe to be on your behalf, and to save you. If you'd like to know more about that, I encourage you to talk to another Christian about what that means. I'd love to talk to you as well. I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service or to meet up and, and talk during the week. But consider the reality that in order to, for God to make us His first fruits, God had to pay the price, and He did it. If you are a believer, think about the, your life as a first fruit for God. Think about this week. Did you live your life as if your life was the first fruit belonging to God, set apart for His purposes and His uses? Or were you thinking only about yourself? Or do you consider your life to be an offering to God? The, the first fruits were, were sacrifices, were offerings brought to God. Or do you prefer, instead of thinking about your whole life as an offering to the Lord, do you think only of some portion of your life as an offering to the Lord and then you keep the rest for yourself? To think of yourself as a first fruit of God is a language of being a living sacrifice. Throughout the Old Testament, God made it clear that sacrifices, the sacrifices He accepts, are blameless. And this is where this picture closes. The sixth characteristic, after describing the people of God as the first fruits for God, the sixth characteristic of the people of God is that they, they are described with no lies and blameless. Look at verse 5. And in their mouth, no lie was found, for they are blameless. It's interesting that the last description of the people of God addresses the issue of lying. No lie was found in their mouth. Have you ever lied? Have you ever lied? Friends, do you consider that lying is a respectable sin? We even have the category of white lies. Oh, the, the, the sort of things that should, you know, everybody does or shouldn't bother us. It's just a small lie. Do you consider lying to be uh, something of a, yeah, everybody does it, as a sort of acceptable weakness? Do you, do you allow yourself to speak untruth? Does your conscience bother you about speaking something that is not true? 
Could it be said of you that no lie is found in your mouth? Lying is brought up here particularly as the last of this description of the, God's, the people of God because one of the key characteristics about the unholy trinity, about the dragon and the beasts, is that they deceive the people of the world. They get to, to, to make the people of the world to worship something other than God by deceiving, by lying to them. The devil is, is described in chapter 12, verse 9, as a deceiver of the whole earth. In John 8, 44, he's described as the father of lies. More so, lying is put in the same list of sins with sexual immorality. And we are told that liars have no place in the new Jerusalem. So anyone who makes a practice of lying reveals that they are not following the dragon, that they're not following God, but they're following the dragon and the beasts. Friends, people wonder, well, who is the beast? Or what does it mean to follow the beast or worship the beast? Following the beast is as simple as practicing lying. Following the beast is as simple as practicing lying. Or anyone who has the lies of the dragon in their mouth. Friends, it's not just that we speak untruth. It's also that anyone who, who adopts the lies of the dragon and the, the beast and what those lies are, they are the false ideologies, the false beliefs that contradict God's word that, that leads people to live in a way contradictory to God's ways. The lies that we can adopt in our lives are the values and the way of thinking that is contradictory to God's word. Have you considered that the, the way of the world is a way that contradicts God's way is actually a lie? And when we adopt the way of the world, we are actually adopting a lie. And a, a lie is on our mouth, even though we might think, well, I'm not lying. I'm speaking the truth. Well, you might in a very minute way, in a very small way, but... But to say that no lies was found in their mouths is they have not let the lies of the dragon to become part of who they are. Friends, following the beast is as simple as practicing and adopting the lies that the dragon puts forth for us. But those who follow the Lamb are described as those in whose mouths no lie was found, for they are blameless. The word for blameless is often, most often, used in the Old Testament to describe the sacrifices that God accepted. Here, the people of God are described as free from any blame. So far, we have unpacked in slow motion the descriptions of the people of God in their glorified existence. But notice how this text describes the people of the earth who worship the beast. In verses 6 through 11, we see the warning not to follow the beast. There's three angels who give messages that address all the people of the earth. The first angel proclaimed an eternal gospel. Now, what is the content of this eternal gospel? Look at verse 7. Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. In other words, the right response to God is to fear him. Not in the sense of being terrified by him, but in a sense of leading us to worship him, leading us to glorify him. Instead of following the lures and the material rewards that the beast promises, instead of fearing 
the threats of the beast or the, 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 the fear of missing out on the goods of this earth, this angel calls the people of the earth to fear someone else, to fear God. But this fear of God is based on the fact that he made us and that he will judge us. This is what we see in verse 7. Fear God. Why? Because his judgment is coming. And fear God because he's the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. But if this call to fear, to fear and worship God is not sufficient, the second angel proclaims another message. In verse 8, it's a message of doom. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all the nations drink the wine of the passions of her sexual immorality. Here the language of, of sexual immorality serves as a picture of describing unfaithfulness to God. It's, it describes rebelling against the commandments of God, engaging in idolatry. The city of Babylon is a city of the world and it's associated with the beast. We will see later in chapter 17 and 18 the detailed description of the fall of Babylon. But here we get a quick preview. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. And then the third message of, of warning, and the, the wording I, I tent, in, intensifies, is in verses 9 through 11. The third angel shows up, and he gives a final message of warning to the people of the earth. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Friends, to receive the mark of the beast is not some sort of physical stamp on your hand or your forehead. To receive the mark of the beast is to act in a way that identifies the people of the earth with a beast, with his values, with its priorities, with its way of life. It's a way of identifying people with the beast. And whoever chooses to live a life that is apart from God's ways, contradictory to God's ways, already has the mark of the beast. And the, the consequences of living a self-ruled life, of living a life that opposes God's ways, is that it leads to eternal torment. The beast is trying to threaten the people of the earth that failing to, to worship the image of the beast would, would, would cause them to be slain, or they will not be able to benefit from the the goods of the earth. That was chapter 13. And here God says that as intimidating as those, threat, those threats might be, here is an even more intimidating, intimidating future. Anyone who would follow and identify with a beast would be tormented forever and ever. Friends, the reality of hell is real. The reality of following someone or something that opposes God, that, that keeps away from God, may bring us discomfort here and now, may bring us some, some tribulation in the present moment. 
But to try to escape those now makes us liable for receiving an unending torment. The beast manifests himself through anything that leads us away from worshiping God exclusively. So think about your own way of life. Think about what keeps you away from from turning to the Lord or what keeps you or leads you to compromise and becomes a, a pattern of sin in your life. Whatever that is for you, if you were to call that path to eternal torment, It may, it may be different in how you approach that sin or that tendency or temptation to compromise. And if for anyone who would consider that living life apart from God is, should be fine or I'll make it through, consider the reality and the warning that this passage gives you and us, anyone, eternal torment, unending the smoke of that torment would go forever and ever. Friend, no matter how appealing it might feel to live life opposed to God or apart from God or a life of independence from God, no matter how pleasant or enticing such a path may look, the eternal consequences of eternal torment are too great a price to pay for enjoying some fleeting moments of pleasure and self-rule now. That's why John points back to a better alternative in the present from contrasting the people of the beast after telling of their, of their coming torment. John comes back to the people of God in the present time and he says, verse 12, here's the better alternative. The better alternative is here is a call for endurance, for the endurance of the saints those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. God's people are called to endure against compromise. Friends, whatever that looks like for you, whatever compromise you are tempted to fall into, consider this call, endure against compromise. The saints in this passage are the people, are described as the people who keep both the commandments of God and faith in Jesus. And notice how in this passage, faith in Jesus is not opposite to keeping the commandments of God. Our faith in Jesus is shown through our obedience to God's commands. Keeping faith in Christ is manifested through our obedience to what God commands. And our obedience to God's commands make our faith in Jesus visible. The people of God are called to endure in keeping their faith in Christ by not compromising on what God commands, either to do or not to do. And these two, the two starting commands, by the way, in the book, in the Ten Commandments, were both related to prohibiting idolatry. So no wonder that John links here, faith in Christ goes hand in hand with keeping the commands of God, especially when the commands of God, at the pinnacle of the commands of God, were the commands against making other gods or worshiping false idols. You cannot have faith in Jesus and in good conscience continue to also go and live your idols and worship them. Idols today may be any ideology, any belief that make us view the world in a way that is foreign from God's revelation. 
Idols may be anything that leads us to live contrary to God's ways. So the call to endure and the call to endurance is followed um, by a call to live a life that pleases the Lord. But this call closes with a beatitude. In the book of Revelation, we have seven beatitudes. The one that we see in this passage in verse 13 is the second beatitude of the book of Revelation. And it says this, and consider these words. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. And why is this beatitude brought here right after a talk and a warning about not following the beast and continuing the call to endure and endurance to the end. It's because the beast may kill some of God's people. As we were told in chapter 13. But blessed are they who die in the Lord. Because their faithfulness in their current life will not be in vain. The beast will not be able to extinguish the faithful testimony that the people of God live, even if they have to give up their lives for it. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. Why? Because their deeds follow them. Now, this is not a salvation by works. This is not about uh, this, uh, somehow that, that God will judge us and allow us into heaven based on our works. No, this is about the works that Christians do will follow them past death for their for receiving the eternal rewards. They got promises. Those who die in Christ, for them death does not make our life as gone. It makes our life as rest. And it's a contrast with what the people of the beast cannot experience after they die. After they die, they will experience no rest forever and ever. For the people of the Lord who die, for them death is a translation into, a transition into a state of rest. What a contrast between those who die in the Lord and those who belong and die as belonging to the beast. Instead of eternal torment, those who die in the Lord experience rest and await their eternal reward. And John closes this contrast between the people of God and the people of the, of the beast with an, another picture that is trying to, to sear our consciences and our imagination. And the picture is the picture of two harvests. And this is a second major point, which will be very short. All of this so far has been just point one of the sermon. The contrast of destinies. Verses 14 through 20, we see two different kinds of harvests. Earlier, we saw how God presents his people as a crop, right? As a first fruits for God. And here we see in verses 14 through 20, we see two harvests. And two different entities harvest these harvests. The first one is one who looks like the, the Son of Man having a golden crown. This represents Jesus. He is given the command from the temple of God, from God's place of reign, that the time of the harvest has come. And Jesus is here engaged personally in harvesting his people, in bringing them home. He's personally engaged in that. 
But there's another harvest. This one, it's the angels of the Lord are sent out. It's not the harvest of grain. It's not the harvest of, of salvation. It's a harvest of grapes. And we're told that in verse 19 and 20, that the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth. But this harvest is different than the first. About this harvest, we are told that the grapes are thrown into the winepress. It's a winepress of the wrath of God. And this winepress was trodden outside the city. And the blood that flowed out of the winepress was as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. The winepress that's giving juice, instead of giving grape juice, is giving out blood. It's a grotesque picture. And the blood is, is as high as, as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia, which has two different ways of interpretation. It could be, if we just translate that in a very geographical mean, means, it, it's about 200 miles, approximately. Imagine from Austin to Dallas, North Dallas. Entire region filled with blood up to the horse's brittle. That's one way to interpret this picture. But another way to interpret the picture is that 1600 is a number made of 4 times 4 times 100. And in the book of Revelation, 4 is always used for the world. 4 times 4 times 100 is a way of, of, of describing the whole earth. It's a picture of, of showing totality. In other words, the evil that God is harvesting and judging is so high that it covers all the earth. God is just in judging the evil of the earth. And, and having so much of, of, its, of its blood shows the, the fact that no, no, not one evil will be left unjudged. The earth has been filled with wickedness, and now none of it will escape God's wrath. Friends, I wonder, when we see these two harvests, I wonder of which one will you and I belong to? Will it be the harvest of God's salvation, or will it be the harvest of the divine wrath of God? Consider today what choices you make. Consider today whether you are continuing to be a worshiper of God, or if you've never considered to be a worshiper of God, whether or not you should consider to be a worshiper of God. I pray that you would. The way you live today, the way you respond to the gospel today, will lead us to two different destinies. The ultimate difference is not between people who are religious and those who are not. The Bible presents all people of the world as worshipers of something, and they either worship the true God or they worship the beast. There's no middle ground. There's no place for compromise. What we worship today will determine the harvest that we will belong to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word reveals to us your ways, your plans. You warn us and you equip us to be ready for that day of judgment. To be ready for the day when you will make all evil uh, be brought to the throne of your perfect justice and you will tread it 
in the winepress of your wrath. Father, pray that you would prepare our hearts for that day. Pray that we would be a part of the people who worship you truly and exclusively through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.